Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech, the podcast where we get into all things biotechnology. My name is Matt, thanks a lot for joining me today. If you like what I'm doing, please like, subscribe, or leave me a comment. And if you're listening only, please leave me a review at any one of the platforms and it would be a big help for me. So, I hope everybody's having a good Saturday. Uh, I spent most of the day reading up on Duchenne muscular dystrophy and Sarepta. And I did that because I noticed they took a big drop on Friday. I, everybody took a big drop on Friday, but Sarepta took a particularly big one. So I was uh, thinking about whether or not I want to take a position in the company. And uh, yeah, so we'll talk about that and uh, finish up with a little portfolio wrap and I'll leave you to it. So just to uh, give some background, um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a pretty brutal disease. It's a, it's a muscle wasting disease. So um, symptoms start in boys at around age four and uh, it's more common in men because it's an x-linked disease and you know you can read more about mendelian genetics if you don't understand that but uh, basically it's a it's a mutation related to the dystrophin gene and this gene is um, important for connecting the intracellular area of a muscle cell to the extracellular matrix and the uh, the problem is that if this gene is mutated or it's uh, missing the um, the integrity of the cell membrane is affected such that uh, calcium inflows happen, and that leads to problems with contraction. And then long-term, these cells end up getting necrotic, and they just end up dying. So um, from age four, these uh, patients, they, they stop losing function of their muscles, and this manifests in problems walking, and, you know, the... The later stages of the disease end up with problems with their heart because obviously that's a muscle as well as their diaphragm, so they have trouble breathing. So it's very, very devastating for these patients. And uh, Sarepta's taken the lead pretty much in um, in getting treatments for these patients. And they uh, their FDA-approved therapy right now is called Edipliersen. And uh, they won approval from the FDA over a competitor, over Biomarin's um, product due to efficacy. So they showed a lot of good efficacy that Biomarin couldn't really show. And really the only difference was in the the non, um, the the Morpholino part of the uh, drug itself. And I'll talk about that a little bit so you know what's uh, what's going on. But um, so Edipliersen is only effective actually in 13% of DMD cases, the first D being Duchenne, then muscular dystrophy. And uh, this is important because it shows there's a large unmet need in this disease. And uh, when we saw all of the different clinical programs that Sarepta uh, has going on, and we, we they really illustrated that on their research day earlier in June, I think that's what led to the, the big increase in their stock price since they're very much committed to trying to get um, as many patients as possible treated with this. So the, uh, the concept behind Edip Learson is related to the nature of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So I'm going to try to talk about this in the simplest form possible. But basically, um, in the, when there's a mutation in the dystrophin gene, uh, usually it's just one part of the gene itself that's uh, affected. But because that one part's affected, it leads to um, malfunction in the entire product the entire protein product. So if you can get rid of this one um, part of the gene that's mutated, then you can actually still end up with a functional protein product. It'll just be truncated. So it'll just be shortened a little bit, and it'll still have a lot more functionality than it did at its 
uh, peak mutated state. So what edoplerosin does is it binds to a part of the transcribed gene that's mutated and that still allows all the functional parts of the gene to come together in an mRNA molecule that'll still lead to a functional protein product. And uh, this still leads to um, a large improvement in the disease state, but it can only treat 13% of patients because this, uh, this drug is only particular to the one type of mutation. And the sum of all the Duchenne muscular dystrophy genes, I think for muscular dystrophy, there's like 30 different genetic disorders. So Sarepta is designing a bunch of different um, specific morpholinos that, is go that are going to bind to each one of these special uh, genetic mutations so that whatever is, is not mutated, these parts of the transcribed product can come together and form uh, an mRNA molecule that will be transcribed fully minus that one part and be much more functional than if the uh, mutated part was still in there. So that's what the nature of this exon skipping is. And if you want more details, I gave a very brief and very simplified view. So read about transcription, translation, and exons and splicing, and you'll be able to understand this better uh, because it's very interesting technology. And suffice to say that uh, this company is looking for a better way to treat the disease because you have to design these morpholinos in a way that it's specific to the proper mutation, and that's kind of a pain. So if we look at their pipeline, they do have a bunch of different um, RNA-targeted therapies, is what they call them, and these are the therapies that are going to bind to each specific mutation and try to prevent it from uh, affecting the entire final protein product. But the one that we're going to talk about today is the uh, the therapy that they have that might actually cure, um, I, I dare say say it, but they might actually cure uh, DMD entirely or any muscular dystrophy that's related to a mutation in the dystrophin gene. So that uh, project is in collaboration with Nationwide, and it's a microdystrophin technology. So to talk a little bit about that, and uh, so I didn't talk about morpholinos, but basically... Um, to simplify that, a morpholino is just something that uh, preferentially binds to DNA or RNA. So depending on how you architect it, um, these molecules are just very efficient at uh, keeping, at being stable and bringing whatever it is you want to towards DNA and RNA or RNA. So in the case of Edeplierson, it'll bind to RNA and that's helpful um, to keep the stability of the, the molecule that they want. So that's not super important, but just so, so you know what I'm talking about. But the, uh, the new technology that they're looking at is uh, microdystrophin. So one of the problems with uh, the gene, this disease itself, is that you can't just reintroduce dystrophin into the muscle because if you're going to do a gene therapy, the size of the, the gene that you'd have to put in the construct is 14 kb, which is huge. And uh, most AAB vectors can't handle that. So what Sarepta's uh, done pretty uh, creatively, I'd say, is they took the most important parts of the dystrophin gene and they made their own construct that was much shorter but still had those essential parts so that it would fit in an AAB vector. 
So that's what they did, and they've called it microdystrophin, and they've uh, injected this construct into a mouse model as well as their uh, first phase, their first children in phase one, phase two trials. So we're going to talk about that. So, okay, this is actually an old presentation. Um, so this is what actually we, we saw on Wednesday. So, uh, yeah. So what they showed us is in a mouse model of dystrophin deficiency, and that's what uh, we see here. So the light pink would be a low dose of the um, of the AAV, uh, which doesn't have very much efficacy to it. And then WT is the wild type, so that's at 100%. So that's what normal expression would look like. And then when they put 6 times 10 to the 14 vector genomes per kg, they see that in all these muscles they get uh, near near perfect rescue of the amount of fibers that express dystrophin. So that's what we're looking for, right, is dystrophin to be to come back into these tissues that have lost it in the mutation. So uh, they have much more clinical data, and you can look at their presentation, and they show very nice stuff. So in this trial, it's an open-label trial, uh, four subjects age four to seven, so it's very early in the onset. They have confirmed DMD mutation, and they're negative for the antibodies associated with the vector, which is important. Okay, and then the primary endpoint that they're looking at is safety, obviously, and then the secondary endpoint was whether or not they got expression of microdystrophin, whether it led to functional changes, and whether or not they could uh, do some sort of behavioral tests and see whether or not the kids do better in, in terms of their muscle function. So the at baseline, uh, they had very high cre uh, creatine kinase, creatinine or creatine kinase activity levels, and uh, this is an indicator of muscle damage. So uh, normal CK levels are, I wrote it down, 22 to 198 units per liter. So, you know, these are three orders of magnitude higher. Um, so it's interesting to note this because later on they're going to show the levels after they've been treated, which is pretty cool. So what they did is they took biopsies before the treatment, and then they took biopsies after, and they did a bunch of protein analyses. So uh, one of them is an IHC stain, so this is immunohistochemistry, and basically they took very, very thin slices of the biopsy, they put it on cover slit, or on slides, and then they stained them for the protein. And they did this with an antibody, presumably against the dystrophin protein, and then they're able to visualize this under a fluorescent microscope because they use uh, an antibody, another antibody, that has this fluorophore on it. So what they see here very nicely, actually, is that uh, you know there's no expression of microdystrophin before, and then after they see nice expression of this protein here. And they were able to get normal control, and you can see that the normal control does is positive for dystrophin. So uh, I've done a lot of staining in my professional career, and you know, there's it would be nice to get a little more details on how they actually looked at this, like because you can change the amount of exposure that the uh, camera actually has to, to brighten this up. So, you know, it'd be nice to know that they use the same amount of exposure for both sets of pictures and that they confirm that the slices of the sections were very similar. Um, just because the, the mean intensity, this can change quite dramatically based on the, the technical things that you do in terms of the, the microscope itself. But, you know, this is still pretty convincing that there's uh, that they're they're seeing um, gene the gene therapy actually work, 
And so this is the kind of thing that would have been nice to see in the Sangamo trial, if you remember my video on that, is that they didn't do any sorts of biopsies, so we can't really see whether or not uh, their treatment actually worked. So something even more convincing is the Western blot data. So this uh, data is, is very similar to the staining one, except what they did is they made a protein lysate, and then they ran it on a gel, and then they probed with a similar antibody as the, the stain, except this is a little bit more quantitative. So uh, what they show here is that in the before the treatment, they have no expression of the full-length dystrophin, nor expression of the microdystrophin. But then after they treat with the AAV, they get expression of this microdystrophin protein, which is the one that they their gene therapy was, was doing. And uh, they have this nice control here to show uh, how it compares to the full-length dystrophin at the different levels because, you know, similar to the IHC is that it's hard to actually quantify a Western blot unless you have a standard curve to know what, how big a splotch, uh, what the size of the splotch refers to in terms of the amount of protein. But uh, this is very encouraging, and I'm not as concerned about the expression levels only because, um, you know, the there's intricacies related to the amount of protein a certain well can hold that is less convincing when it comes to quantifying this. So normally you wouldn't have this much protein for your loading control um, because it's hard to detect differences when there's so much of it in there. So, you know, I'm, I'm getting lost in the weeds a little bit with the technique itself, but uh, this might not be super reliable. If you were to rerun this blot but you used maybe half the amount of protein, um, you might be able to see that, in fact, the, the expression isn't quite as high as it is here. So there's intricacies related to this technique that make the um, expression, like the percent expression here, not as reliable as a lot of people might be reading into. So this doesn't concern me very much uh, compared to the number of people and like the earnings call or the 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 call that we're actually quite concerned about this being very highly expressed uh, compared to the other patients. So uh, that was patient four, but there were two, three other patients, and they all saw expression in a similar way. So you can see here they got nice expression localized to the cell membrane, which is what you want for dystrophin. Um, and also in the blots, we can see here that they see nice uh, bands in the microdystrophin size and um, yeah, so it's it's great to see that their their treatment's actually working, and uh, they're seeing that the gene therapy's leading to a couple things. So it's leading to expression. So they're seeing the protein actually working, or they're seeing the protein actually there in the cells, and they're seeing it localized to the cell membrane, which is super important because a lot of times if you put these proteins in, they uh, they might not go to the right area. They might not be processed properly, but uh, they're seeing that in a in a positive way here. So that's good. So they followed up by uh, doing a lot of um, functional changes. So this NSA, NSAA assessment is, uh, is a way to look at um, whether or not they see behavioral improvements. And they saw, you know, like walking upstairs, they saw a great improvement there. Um, other, other things that they, that they can test in the kids and they saw a large improvement. And then in the CK levels, if you remember, they saw huge drops in the CK. 
and uh, it's not back down to, to normal, but this is a huge decrease, which I think is very encouraging. And even at one patient, so the patients are staggered a little bit, but you can see here that at day 270, uh, this patient is still has a huge decrease of like three quarters in their CK levels. So it seems like this treatment is relatively durable, which is pretty exciting because I think the Edipliercin, uh, it's infused weekly, um, I believe, and, uh, and it can be pretty expensive. So this one shot deal, it, it might be expensive, but it, uh, it might just be a one treatment where you don't need to, to go back every week. So they then did a bunch of functional studies, and uh, I showed the the final data. But um, yeah, so it's it's good to see that they're seeing improvements in the functionality itself. And uh, yeah, so the related to the safety though, which was actually the primary endpoint, they saw no adverse events. Um, they had three of the patients had elevated in this uh, transpeptidase, but I think um, they were all on steroid treatment. So. They, they can manage a lot of these negative side effects with uh, steroid treatment, which will tamper down the immune system that's uh, obviously elevated from getting a virus injected into them. But I think uh, in general, the safety was very positive for this study. So I could see this being very uh, a very effective treatment if the uh, results they see here continue. So everybody's pretty excited about it on the call, and um, a lot of the, the questions are related, like in the, in the call, a lot of the questions were related to the expression level differences. And um, so this is particularly important when it comes to the blood disorders, so a lot of the companies that are involved in that, because if you have too much of the different factors, you could lead to thrombosis, which can be life-threatening. But when it comes to mu muscular dystrophy, uh, in a lot of the preclinical models, they showed that you can have up to 50 times the normal amount of dystrophin, and you won't see any toxicologic problems. So to have a 2x increase than normal in like patient 4, for instance, uh, it's not going to lead to anything negative. So they, the scientists on the call really hammered that home, but I don't know if the, uh, the investors on the other side really got it. So I'm, uh, I'm inclined to believe the, the scientists in this because... Um, you know, in, in the cells, I think uh, dystrophin is not an abundant protein in the cells, but it needs to be there. So you can increase the amount of dystrophin a lot, and it won't actually lead to any, anything negative. So that, uh, to me, is not a big deal in this case. And it's more impressive that they actually got it to work, and then they got, um, in most patients, almost 100% of the dystrophin expression in the, in the microdystrophin. So um, otherwise, they talked about doing their meeting with the FDA later, and they're going to start the next study in uh, early 2019. So that's exciting as well. Um, yeah, so that was uh, pretty much from the from the call. That's that's the only real things that I got. But overall, the the treatment seems like it's effective, and it seems to work in these kids. So if uh, if this works, this would really supersede the need to have a. Uh, Edipliercin or any morpholino-related disease, any morpholino-related treatment, if this microdystrophin can um, continue to show benefits like this. So in uh, in the model that I put together, real quick, I know we're we're getting at twenty minutes, but I'm going to keep going. So the number of patients that Edipliercin can treat is two hundred thousand. Oh no, sorry, scratch that. The number of muscular dystrophy patients is two hundred thousand globally and 20,000 in the EU and the US. Now, 
Edipliracin can only treat about 13% of these patients. So they have a maximum market size right now of only, you know, whatever 13% of that. So, oh, I put it right here. So 2,600 patients in the EU and the US is like their max market right now. So based on some assumptions that I've made, and you have to make assumptions when you're doing this, uh, I value the company at like a third of what it's trading at right now if they only keep Edipliracin and other, um, really only if they keep Edipliracin. If they're able to get other exon-skipping treatments, uh, this would obviously increase their value a lot because they're going to widen their net of their patient population. But right now they can only do, they can only treat about 13% of these patients. So um, if they get no other approvals, I value the company at like four, 40 bucks a share. But if they're able to get approval of um, of this, uh, I forget the name of the actual treatment, the AAB vector, where they're able to treat pretty much any patient that has a dystrophin problem, um, the market is, is about seven times larger. So it's that 200,000 patients in the globally or 20,000 patients in the EU or the US. So if I were to like discount that difference, I end up with about 200 bucks a share and, uh, you know, that's just, that's based on a lot of assumptions and their growth and, um, you know, how they're going to play out forward. But, uh, I'm not sure if I'm willing to take a position yet only because, uh, I've been, I'm getting hammered with a couple of my positions already. And, um, I'm tempted to do some other gamble related to Biogen that, that I'll talk about. Maybe I'll talk about it when we get closer to it, but Biogen's going to be presenting their, um, updated data, which I don't think is going to be very good. So I'm debating doing that, but, this is my my rough estimate, um, just based on on what I what I said. So, and uh, you know, this is based on assumptions that you need to make. So, you know, you discount future cash flows by like ten percent, and um, there's like a, a plateau of growth that you want to hit. And obviously, they're not going to grow forever. So, that's a, that's my assumption. But I think um, if they are able to get this microdystrophin treatment, it would be uh, it'd be very huge for for everybody with dystrophy, muscular dystrophy. Okay, so with that, I'm going to wrap up with uh, my portfolio. So everything took a hit at the end of the day on uh, Friday. Thursday, Friday was pretty rough. But um, if I just go through some of the companies here in particular. Uh, so Amion had a presentation that they did, and they they humored the idea of a buyout. So I don't know if there's any truth to it, but it fluctuated a lot throughout the week. So um, we'll see about that. Uh, Atomus, there was some news on Friday about um, there being a lack of um, patient refills when it came to Gokovri. So I am not feeling good about Atomus. This has been my worst investment uh, yet. So congratulations, Atomus. You get the gold medal in that regard. I, uh, I have not decided on cutting the position yet. I still want to wait before I want to wait for confirmation of that um, in their next call. And then you know what, I'll eat the loss and we can spend that money on something that's more likely to get a profit. But otherwise, Illumina took a big dip. Uh, if you just look here from September 28th to October 5th, huge dip here. I, uh, I didn't add any shares, but um, I, I'm tempted to, to play some options because I feel like it's not going to stay this low for this long and it's going to try and, and start to slowly climb back up again. So we'll see with that. Uh, Fade also is maintaining around where it was. Uh, Spark continues to bleed a little bit, but I'm not, I'm not too worried about it. Um, what else here? Oh yeah, so I did end up taking a position on Ameren. 
and uh, I I tweeted about it. So if you if you're not following me, you can add me at uh, at Matthew Lepore on Twitter, and uh, I managed to just buy in on that dip. Uh, I think it was Wednesday, but uh, Amron had a pretty substantial dip, and I, I picked up some shares at like uh, I bought twice. I think at like 15 and at 16, um, maybe 17. Anyway, so. I uh, I caught a bit of that headwind as it as they closed around uh, nineteen and a half, but uh, yeah. So I've also scaled in a Vertex, uh, sorry Viking, Therapeutics, not not Vertex Viking Therapeutics position, and I'm down on that. I think um, people were less excited about the the hip fracture data that came out, but I uh, I think that they they still hold a lot of potential. So overall, I'm down. I think I'm at like six percent. Um, both myself and the XBI are below the S and P five hundred which doesn't feel good, but, uh, you know, when, when the volatility strikes, a lot of the, uh, the high risk categories are the ones to lose money first. And biotech is definitely high risk like that. So, uh, we shouldn't be surprised to see these wild swings, but yeah. So, uh, with that, I want to thank everybody for watching. Uh, I don't think I have anything else to talk about, but, um, please like subscribe or leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. And, um, yeah, with that happy trading and, uh, we'll see you next time.